0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, I'm joined by parapsychologist and author, Dr. Dean Radin. Dean has been a key figure in parapsychological research for nearly 40 years, and is currently chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and Associated Distinguished Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Over his career, he has worked at AT AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, the University of Edinburgh, and the Stanford Research Institute. He has given over 600 talks and interviews worldwide, and is a prolific author, including four popular science books translated into 15 foreign languages, starting with The Conscious Universe in 1997, and most recently, Real Magic in 2018. In the interview, I talked with Dean about his career and some of the research and experiments he conducted as part of that, what we mean when we use terms such as mind, consciousness and magic, and how those things relate to each other. Very interesting stuff. Enjoy! Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. You've been in the forefront of consciousness research for a large part of your career. How did that interest begin for you?
1: Uh, the truth is I don't actually know, <laughs> uh, but I do know that I've, I've been interested in matters of the mind for as long as I can remember. So I, I can't think of any one
0: event. Uh, it just seems to have always been there. Right. Okay. And in terms of having a career in, in that regard, um, how did that start for you? Well,
1: this is related to somehow intuitively knowing or being interested in the mind and its capacities forever. And since I had that passion, even starting as a young child, uh, I figured that if it were possible, to have a career where you could study that, well, that that would be good if you can be paid to do what you're interested in. So, I, I was interested in, uh, in seeing if it was possible to craft a career where this actually became my profession. And so, I always had that in mind. I was always looking for a way to be able to earn a living and also study things that I was interested in. So. If As often happens, if you, you know what your passion is and you work hard at uh, finding a way to earn a living at it, well, sometimes it can happen.
0: Mm. And at the moment, one of the, one of the roles you have is a Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about what noetics are? Well, the, the word
1: noetic, uh, it refers to a sense of knowing sense of intuitive knowing uh, where there's also a sense of certainty that the knowing is correct even though you don't know why you know it like any form of intuition you know something but you don't know why well the noetic spin on it is that you know with certainty that it's correct and oftentimes if you have an opportunity to test whether it's correct you find that it is in fact correct so that's it's a form of knowing essentially Uh, Our institute was started in 1973 by Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut who was the sixth man on the moon. And uh, he he has written extensively about his experiences, but uh, his background would never have led anyone to, to expect that he would become interested in noetic experiences. But as one of his memoirs points out, that uh, he was a naval captain and test pilot and uh, an astronaut, and got a a doctorate from MIT in aeronautical sciences at the same time, like most humans at some point, wondering what's it all about? How how am I conscious? What Does that mean something? Uh, The scientific worldview doesn't give us an answer to that. The only place that we can usually look then, is religion. But for somebody who who grows up in, in uh, increasingly in a secular world, especially a scientist, uh, you could take religious ideas on faith, but that's not really very satisfying. So as a scientist, you want to know, how, what, what can I know? What can I test and find out, actually, that without having to rely on faith? Well, science doesn't provide an answer. So when Edgar... Had a, a mystical experience on the way back from the from the moon to the earth, he was determined to see if it were possible to uh, have an institute that was devoted to understanding things like mystical experience and psychic experience, but from a scientific perspective. So that's what we do. So uh, the science team at our institute are all trained in traditional methods. Uh, we're multidisciplinary we all have the same kind of interests that Edgar originally had. And so we're using the same tools and techniques and theories to try to understand uh, what, what is the rest of consciousness trying to tell us about the nature of reality. And we, we love it. This is exactly the kinds of things that we wanted to find out. And we find also that a large majority of other scientists, to say nothing of lay people, are also interested in the very same questions. So
0: that's why, that's why I have fun at work. <laughs> so when you started out, what was the, what was the sort of scientific climate like in, in regards to you being able to do this work and conduct the research and the experiments that you wanted to? Well, the notion of science studying consciousness
1: uh, even if you go back only thirty years, uh, hardly anybody in science was was looking at consciousness as a topic of interest. Uh, you would find philosophers who are interested in the mind body problem, and that those discussions have been going on for three thousand years. <laughs> but within science, it was primarily a subset of people involved in anesthesia who were trying to figure out better ways of making people become unconscious, uh, and also. Uh, a small subset of people in the neurosciences who are interested in studying if there were uh, correlates of consciousness, but going beyond that, it, it was uh, it was unacceptable. It, it wasn't that there was a taboo or anything. It's just that people didn't think that this was a topic that was worth studying. So I think what what happened is maybe in the 1970s or so, after the psychedelic revolution had had made a number of people wake up, uh, that scientists began to become more interested, uh, both in the neurosciences and in physics. The idea of studying the underlying aspects of what is reality really and how does consciousness fit into it, that slowly became acceptable to study, and, and that trend has continued for about the last 30 years or so. And now it's virtually mainstream. And you can see this by the number of conferences that have something to do with the nature of consciousness and by the number of journals that are now devoted to this topic and the number of articles that are published in mainstream journals. What is not yet mainstream is looking at the outer limits of consciousness. So when I'm talking about psychic and mystical phenomena, there are people like myself who are studying or focusing on those issues, but there is still great reluctance to go there from a scientific perspective because it's exceptionally difficult to understand why these other experiences should exist from the conventional scientific worldview, from a materialistic worldview. And so what's very interesting is in the last five years, perhaps maybe 10 years, a growing number of scientists are beginning to also question whether scientific materialism is sufficient to understand consciousness. And so you find thought leaders in physics and in psychology and the neurosciences who are beginning to embrace terms like panpsychism and neutral monism. And those perspectives are much more compatible with the possibility that the, the mind is, has much more interest uh, in terms of its non-local capacities than had previously been considered, or at least had been considered in the mainstream.
0: Right, okay. And so what was some of the early work that you undertook in, in regards to research and experiments? What what were you most interested in? Well, when I
1: after I got my doctorate, my my first job was at Bell Labs, and uh, ATT's mm-hmm. Bell Laboratories. And the work I was doing there was was interesting, but it wasn't sufficiently interesting to capture all of my attention. So I used some of the the uh, free time that I had there to study both precognition, which was an extension of what I had already been doing in graduate school, uh, and also became more interested in psychokinetic effects, mind-matter interaction effects. So the precognition part was uh, taking advantage of, at that time, uh, this is the early 80s, uh, computer terminals were now available. They're quite expensive and there was no such thing as a personal computer at that time, but it was possible to make pretty displays uh, using graphics on on these computer terminals. So I made like a dowsing experiment where uh, somewhere on the screen, there would be a target selected randomly by the computer and your job as the uh, subject in an experiment was to think to, to sort of douse over the empty screen and select a point where you think the random dot would appear and so it's like a game like a guessing game, but it was based on a precognition. so I did that I ran an experiment like that at work and with some interesting results and then more directly re- relevant to what I was doing at work was part of the interest that we had was why machines fail. I was in a human factors group where we study things like that. And in particular, in the telephone system then, and and now as well, uh, when you make a telephone call, whether it's by a landline or cell phone, the the request uh, transverses computers that are scattered all around the world. And they work very quickly to figure out how do I get from where you are to where the other person is and to ring their phone. Well, those are triply redundant at the time. They were triply redundant. Maybe now it's even better. Uh, so it it designed so that it would not fail, so that when you place a call, you had extremely high reliability that it was going to go through. And yet, sometimes it would fail. So the question was, well, why does it fail? So every conceivable reason why these computers might fail had been looked at. And you can go down a list and basically about 99% of the time you could figure out why there's some physical reason or some software fault or something. But there was always a residue left over where we could not find any reason at all. So I had been reading the literature in parapsychology that suggested that some aspects of consciousness and specifically about uh, anxiety and emotion that seemed to correlate with machine failure. Not in any normal way we could figure out, but nevertheless, the correlation was there. And in fact, it was so well known that it, it's referred to as Murphy's Law. So Murphy's Law is known in every laboratory. It means that uh, if anything can go wrong, it will, and at the worst possible time. So we had been seeing something like Murphy's Law in the lab where we we would, uh, we've been working on a project for a year and there may be 25 people on the project and lots of complexities with hardware and software. And we would have a visiting dignitary come who wanted to see a demo. So we would do a demo and it would always fail, but only if a certain person was in the room. So the certain person in this case was the lead software developer who had the most anxiety about hoping that it wouldn't fail. When he wasn't in the room, everything worked fine. So I use that as an excuse to say, well, let's look at this in a more basic science perspective, because I had been reading that uh, these people are doing experiments using random number circuits, which are basically electronic circuits. And it looks as though intention can influence the probability of these events that the circuit is producing. So I did those experiments, with myself and with my colleagues at Bell Labs, and we got really interesting results. So I thought, okay, that's that's interesting because it's both relevant to what we're studying, but more importantly, really, that intention, something about consciousness is interacting with the physical system, both in the ways that I have read and as the lore says. I mean, there's traditions and lore going all the way back to shamanism, which says, Yeah, that this is a real thing. And yet science knows almost nothing about it. And so whenever you run across an anomaly like that, uh, it's either a mistake, like we'll finally figure it out and then dismiss it as a mistake, or it's a revolution in the making. It's showing us something that we, we completely overlooked before. And if we understand it better, would turn into a whole new realm of science. So it was those kinds of experiences early on. This is now 30 years or over 30 years ago where I started doing these experiments in earnest that I realized it's very likely that these phenomena are real. And as a result, they open a crack into some other realm of reality that we know very little about which is not to say that others haven't noticed this uh, there've certainly been scientists noticing this but more importantly in the esoteric traditions people have known about these things as far back as history goes they're just not in fashion right now in the scientific world and so they they tend to be ignored
0: right yeah of course so in this in this kind of uh, research and with an experiment like that do you have to make a distinction between consciousness and the mind because i suppose the mind the, when we th- when a person thinks of the mind it might sort of be seen as more localized to a person whereas consciousness is a more all encompassing thing yeah you're asking about uh, how do you define
1: consciousness and mind and attention <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. this is this is not an easy definition um, so one way i think of it is that consciousness is almost synonymous with awareness or Subjective experience—it's the thing that you call me when you're talking about yourself. So, it encompasses not just awareness, but it may also encompass a sense of self-awareness, sense of self. Whereas, and and it's—we don't know what it is. We don't know exactly where it comes from, but and it's something that's there. Every, Every sentient being has a sense of internal place, right? Internal sense of self. Uh, which is very different than, as best as we can tell, it's very different than the external world. So it's as though kind of a dualistic way of thinking about things. There's the outside world out there, and we have an inside world. We are very good at describing the outside world using science. Uh, We're not so good at describing the inside world in terms of what its fundamentals are. So mind, I can think of as... uh, you can think of consciousness, mind, intention, all of these words with a small letter or a capital letter. So mind with a capital M, you might think of as some sort of a universal mind, a, a thinking, intelligent thing, which may not be localized. And the same with consciousness. Consciousness is awareness, which with a small C is inside your head. Apparently it feels that way. Uh, but a large C is maybe it's universal in some way. So the, the big C and little c consciousness and big M, little m con- mind, uh, I, I expect are not dualist. It, it's, there's a spectrum in which uh, e- even small consciousness mind uh, can at times feel the same as capital M, capital C consciousness. And when that occurs, the experience is felt as a mystical experience or as a psychic experience. And again, it's some kind of spectrum that goes all the way down to extremely localized inside you, at least that's a feeling, to not localized at all, maybe encompassing the entire universe.
0: Hmm. So when you were starting out, did you consider the, the research you were doing to be parapsychology? Or was it, for you, did it not need that sort of terminology?
1: It, it was parapsychology because that's what the the books were and the articles were. They were published under that that name, that discipline. Uh, earlier, it was called psychical research, but it's basically yes, it's within that domain.
0: Okay, and so how how did it progress from from that point? What sort of what did you look for? Sort of repeatability or finding other people to conduct research with things like that. Well, I started doing
1: experiments. They published them, went to conferences, and uh, I was invited to, after one conference, I was invited to join what was then a secret program run by the US government on psychic spying, or use of clairvoyance for espionage. So there had been rumors that the government had been supporting such things, and I certainly knew about the rumors. But this was no longer a rumor because now I would join that program. So I did. And that that was quite different than what I had been doing before because I had never really worked with people who were exceptionally good at uh, using these kinds of skills. But in that program, I met people and was able to see how they they did what they did, uh, primarily with clairvoyance. And... That cemented my interest because now I saw that we didn't just need to deal with minor statistical effects, which you can see in average people, uh, but you can get high-quality data from people who are especially talented at these things. Uh, so I did. I determined at that time if there was a way for me to continue working in in a domain where, where I had at least access or full-time capability to, t- to study these kinds of phenomena that I would, I would do that if the opportunity came along. So I always was looking for opportunities and I made sure that I went to the conferences and I continued doing work on my own and publishing it. And uh, I, I went and met most of the people in the U S and, and a number of other countries who had laboratories or interests in these topics. So I, Essentially, made it by business to join the community of of other scientists around the world who are interested in these same things. Because the number of jobs available are far fewer than than uh, fingers on one hand, and so if you want to get a job in in that area, you have to work at it.
0: Hmm. Are Are you able to talk a little bit about was it Project Stargate? Yes. Are you able to talk a little bit about your work there and what a bit more about what that involved?
1: Yeah. So most of Stargate has been declassified as of uh, 1995 is when the program was officially closed. And a couple of years ago, a four volume uh, set of documents or books was published called the Stargate Archives, which... Uh, reproduces the original tech reports and a lot of the background information and uh, of, of what happened during that project. So these are four v- large format, very big volumes. Uh, I don't know exactly how many, but I imagine somewhere around 1,500 to 2,000 pages worth that, that give the inside story at least from the point of view of the research that went on because there are two sides. There was a research facility trying to understand these things, and there was also an operational side where people were using these things, primarily uh, the Army program, but there were a lot of agencies that were using their services. So what I can say then is that, as you would kind of expect, and you see today even regarding matters of, of UFOs, that as far as the government is concerned, and especially the military or intelligence world, what they want to know is, is there a threat? So part of what I was doing was threat analysis. Is we get, a uh, at the time, uh, a Chinese scientist who had defected to the West might have been, or at least claimed, to have been working in these same kind of things. Uh, and so we would interview them and look at the articles that they had written. And if we decided that something looked like it was credible, we would try to replicate it. To see if there was if it was real, and that would tell us what, what are other countries doing in this domain, and are they ahead of us, and do we have anything to worry about? So that's part of it. And it, as I said, the same thing is going on with UFOs. Are they a threat? Well, that's it, the moment you even consider that it might be a threat. That's how money flows from the government, at least in these in this domain, and in UFOs. Uh, so besides that, uh, I was also able to do some. Uh, basic research on precognition, on the nature of precognition, and actually for the year that I spent on that project, I also spent a lot of time uh, working on the annual conference. I was the program chair of the annual conference in parapsychology, and so I was able to use some of my time in the office to actually work on that and prepare the proceedings documents. So that, that was all useful because it it got me even in closer contact with people around the world who were doing similar research, and it could justify it on the basis of, even though people did not know I was working on a classified program, part of the idea of that program is to track what is happening in this domain around the world. So this is true in almost any any classified program you can imagine that has a science component, you always want to keep an eye on what others are doing and you want to uh, assess whether or not there are threats that our government should know about.
0: Yeah, of course. So, I mean, after after your involvement in that, how did that influence what you did next in terms of your career and the sort of work you wanted to do?
1: Well, it did in the sense, as I said, that I figured if there was a way that I can continue to do this, but not in a classified environment, I would need to do that. So, as it turned out, I went back to Bell Labs because I had taken a leave of absence to work on this project, and within a few months, I was contacted by people at Princeton University who were doing similar kind of research, and they made an offer which I couldn't refuse. Uh, actually, most of these are offers I couldn't refuse. That's that's the way my whole career has gone. You know, do you want to do, do? You want to go work for a secret government project? Do you want to work at Princeton University? You know, do you want to work at the University of Edinburgh? Yes. So by following uh, the the offers that came my way, I was able to uh, in total spend around 10 years of my working life so far doing working in industry and uh, doing conventional work, but spending some of my time as well working on these kinds of things and all of the rest of it, roughly 30 years now, full time doing research on parapsychology. At sometimes in the university setting, sometimes in an industrial setting, and for the last 20 years at a non-profit, the, the Institute of Noetic Sciences.
0: Mm, so I imagine that for the most part, this this kind of thing, it's often depicted as being very much a, a fringe science, but it sounds like through your, you know, through your talent and meeting the right people, we're able to, to build yourself a career. So do you think that it is still a fringe science, or is it just one that's smaller, <laughs> if you see what I mean rather than rather than being unpopular or not looked at, it's just that it's not really mainstream, I guess
1: right so the answer to that question depends on who you talk to. Uh, is it mainstream in the sense of having a department of parapsychology in every university in the world? No. Uh, there's roughly 15,000 institutions of higher learning around the world and roughly 50 that have a faculty member who's known for having an interest in this topic. Well, that means that way over 99% of the universities around the world don't even have one person known for being interested and not only interested in a positive sense, but even in a negative sense. So it's by no means mainstream from that perspective. And as a result, the amount of funding that is available and the amount of visibility and so on are, are way below the radar. Well, that's okay. I mean, every, every time you are pushing against the status quo, and in this case, the status quo is just the existing number of people in the academic world, but, but also the status quo in terms of our scientific worldview. When you push against the status quo, the status quo is very effective in pushing back. It doesn't, it doesn't want to deal with this. So part of it all along has been the giggle factor. It's unfortunate that there are TV shows which say the parapsychologists are basically doing ghost busting. And there are some of my colleagues who are seriously interested in things like haunting investigations, but it's nothing like what you see on television. It's nothing like you see in movies. And that's what most people know, including most scientists. So they will make assumptions about uh, it's all based on fraud or it's based on flaw or the people doing it are naive, all those kinds of questions. So having that as kind of a stereotype, they simply dismiss anything. Like if some some interesting article comes up, they'll dismiss it. And what's really interesting about this is I've worked in some of the the most prestigious laboratories and universities in the world. I know how they work. I know the people who are there. I know how the people think and, and all the rest. The kind of of research that that I've done uh, in academic settings and for the government and in industry, it's the same people, the same level of expertise, the same scientific methods. It's all the same. And yet, when we seriously look at these kinds of phenomena, we find really interesting clues about some aspect of consciousness that the the, the rest of the scientific world, at least, is not paying much attention to. Uh, so what's also interesting is we did a survey about a year ago uh, to see what what do people actually experience who are scientists and engineers because we you'd figure that scientists and engineers are, are are brought up in and trained in and use the scientific worldview of materialism so do I that's what I was trained in that's that's what I use. And it's very effective and very few people see any reason to not want to use that. So they do. But we are also interested in experience. So we asked in our survey among people who are either scientists or engineers, We gave them a list of 25 different kinds of experiences that would be psychic experiences, except we didn't use those terms. So instead of you saying, did you ever have an experience of telepathy? We would say, did you ever have an experience where you felt that something in your mind uh, was picked up by somebody else's mind or vice versa? So we used neutral terms to describe the experience. What we found was that 94% of the people responding, either scientists or engineers, 94% said, yeah, they had at least one of the 25 experiences personally and on average, eight of the 25. So this confirmed what what we have been feeling all along, that scientists are people too, and we're talking about some natural capacity of human experience, which has been given labels of names that are called psychic, but the experiences themselves are actually quite common and experienced by a lot of people. So what's going on here then is that there's a taboo, that scientists are told not to talk about this stuff, or you learn very quickly you don't talk about it because some people are freaked out, some people have religious objections, and others say, well, we don't have any way of understanding this, so we're simply going to not talk about it. And that that's still pretty much the state of the art, with one possible exception, which could blow the field open uh, completely. And that is that, it's the domain of quantum biology, and it's addressing the notion of whether there are aspects of the brain that are operating in a quantum fashion. So 10 years ago, people would say, yeah, maybe maybe there's something, I mean, there's certainly a lot of things going on in the brain at the quantum scale, but the, uh, in order to sustain something like quantum coherence or quantum entanglement, it would only last for a fraction of a picosecond. It would would appear and disappear so quickly, it couldn't possibly account for anything psychic. But as time is marching on and quantum biology is being studied by more people, we're finding that there are all kinds of living uh, systems that not only have quantum processes, but rely on them in order to work properly. What's even more interesting is within the last couple of years, proposals that uh, there might be ways of sustaining Quantum effects in the brain that would last between uh, hours to weeks, and this is a totally new development. Uh, it has to do with nuclear spin in in the brain, actually everywhere in the body, but it would also operate in the in the brain. Uh, the nuclear spin would be shielded from the environment, which is necessary in order to maintain its its quantum state. Uh, if that is true, and I know there are people who are interested in studying that specifically, if it is true, then there are aspects of the of the brain and the mind, the mind with a little m, uh, that is experiencing the same kind of wave-like potential nature of reality that we see in a physics lab involving things like quantum entangled photons. That makes the a plausibility case for psychic phenomena, which is much, much more easily acceptable to scientists today than if we postulate even spookier ideas. Because now we can say something like, well, we don't know exactly how this would work, but if, uh, if, if two brains were entangled in some fashion and the entanglement continued for quite a while, then it shouldn't be surprising at all that sometimes they share information. This is particularly true now Given this whole domain within neuroscience is called hyperscanning, so the hyperscanning thing, which you find in lots of articles now, has to do with having two or more people engaged in the same task, and when you look at the physiology, actually all—not only psychophysiology, but but the brain—the brain goes into coherence across people when they're engaged in the same task. So you can say, okay. Imagine the brain is quantum in some fashion. Imagine hyperscanning. That would predict that something like telepathy should exist. And oh by the way, there's a ton of evidence that it does exist. So what I'm with the story I'm spinning here then is that we have a lot of evidence that it exists. We have been uh, deficit in terms of theories, but elements of theories are beginning to become discussed within the mainstream and. By carefully crafting together how you put the evidence and, and those ideas together, you can spin a narrative that sounds like a plausible explanation as to why these phenomena should exist. So that's like a long that's a long-winded answer for your question, but that I, I see this beginning to form, and it would very dramatically change uh, the taboo nature of these phenomena into one where people I, I expect. We'll say, well, well, of course, we already we knew that they existed. You know, it happens to me all
0: the time. I just didn't know how to explain it. So, well, now you have an explanation. Yeah, definitely. That was a really interesting answer. Thank you. Um, Earlier on, you were talking about intentionality, and I'm just wondering: is relative to your research and what we've been talking about, is is intention kind of a on-off switch for a person to to do these things, or? Or is this stuff sort of permanently on in the background, and 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 the relationship that an individual has with it different in that way? Uh,
1: nothing about human performance or physiology is an on-off switch. Uh, so, there are many, many different spectra and dimensions of intention. Uh, as best as we can tell, the intention required in order to perform well in experiments that look at mind-matter interaction is not one where it's at the forefront where you want it. So the more that you want it, it carries along a degree of anxiety, and anxiety seems to squash this effect immediately. So the term that is developed, you see this uh, in many different traditions, but uh, effortless driving is one way of, of describing it. So you must strive to have the intention that you wish, but it has to be done with no effort at all which sounds like a paradox, but nevertheless, that seems to be the state it's wanting desperately without any, any anxiety. That's where you start to see these things happen. And even in, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, there's the idea of abiding. There's like a calm abiding, which is basically the same as effortless striving. You, you want something with every fiber of your being without, any anxiety at all. And, it, and it's possible to achieve that state, but it's not easy.
0: Mm. So I know that you've done experiments with food and, and drink that have been blessed or have some special quality to them. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because those are, are really interesting. Well, so the idea of uh, intention
1: changing the structure of a physical system Uh, we think of what kind of targets to use. And so you have to have a target where you can measure changes in either the structure or the behavior of the target. Otherwise, you'd never know if anything happened. So you wouldn't want to use your intention to manipulate a rock or a steel beam unless you had a way of measuring how it was changing. So the targets that have been used traditionally are simple things like the toss of dice because it's a random event and you figure that uh, in order to get a die to land on the, with face-up that you want, the amount of energy or force that's necessary would be extremely small. You just have to guide it in just the right way. So those studies evolved into studies using uh, electronic circuits that did the same thing as a dice throw, except it was based on quantum events, which are thought to be fundamentally random, things like uh, like radioactive decay times. So presumably they, they are unpredictable. And so you can turn that into a device that produces random bits, zeros and ones randomly. So those have been used extensively in these kinds of experiments. And then others have used things like cell cultures that were growing um, or uh, or ba- bacterial colonies. Those uh, so are bacteria slightly larger than cells. Um, and small animals' behavior, small animal health, uh, human health, human behavior, and then more physical things like just water, structure of water itself. And it then it didn't expand it on into a bunch of other things. So the idea of studying whether, and, and I've done many of those studies and my colleagues have done many more of the studies of many, many different kinds of physical systems. And most of them you see some kind of, of outcome that is correlated with intention. So I got interested in water because I've done a few studies involving healing and the human body, human adult body is roughly 70% water. So if intention was able to change something about the structure of water, maybe that would be a way of understanding why uh, intention also seems to have an impact on health. So, uh, th- so that was the water part. So we, we do see some molecular changes in water And I thought, well, it would be interesting then to see if we had some of that water that had been intentionally changed and use it to do something. So one of the tests was uh, to see whether you use intentionally blessed or imprinted water to create tea from that water and then uh, have the, uh, the same tea that was not blessed and given in a double blind fashion to a bunch of people and simply have them report their mood. To see if it made any difference. Well, it does make a difference. A colleague had done the same thing with wine, some of which had been intentionally imprinted and others had not, and people can tell the difference on that. And then I used water to uh, to see if it would make a difference in plant growth, and it does as compared to the control. Um, we've recently done a study, we haven't published it yet, seeing whether intentionally changed water would make a difference in terms of the proliferation of stem cells. And it does. So we're seeing lots of effects having to do with uh, some st- change in water, which we can measure with a spectrometer. We don't know why that change would result in these differences, but it, it does empirically. And so that, that led to the idea of, well, maybe you can do it uh, to food as well. Uh, These are slightly out of chronological sequence, but just in terms of way of describing what we did. So we use chocolate as a a measure. And part of the justification for that is the Catholic ceremony of the Eucharist, in which you take a wafer and is magically transformed by the ceremony into the body of Christ. And people believe that, And the question is, well, has anybody ever actually looked at the structure of the wafer to see if it's different, as best as we can tell? Well, they don't because it's part of a religious ceremony. So I didn't want to use a wafer. I wanted to use something that would be easier to attract people to do an experiment. So I used little pastilles of chocolate, about the size of a half a dollar or smaller, and dark chocolate, a gourmet brand. So half of the chocolate was intentionally blessed, and half of it wasn't. We had people eat the chocolate, record their mood, and there was a significant difference in the predicted direction. So at this point, the, the effects that, that we've seen, the effects that our colleagues have seen are pretty small. You need statistics in order to be able to see that there's a real difference. Uh, but the fact that there's any difference is already kind of mind-boggling, because it means that what we normally think of as something which is quite separate from us, and not re- not reactive to us at all in fact appears that it is reactive so from a classical physics perspective you would never predict that simply observing water with intention or without or observing a piece of chocolate or any other target system that shouldn't have any different any have any effect on it we know in quantum mechanics that it does so what we might be looking at is some sort of a quantum effect where consciousness is related in some way to quantum mechanics as a number of the founders of quantum mechanics had proposed and there's still physicists to the present day who believe this it's not the majority opinion but it's also not that small a minority opinion roughly 20% so what we we do empirically in the lab is test things that people have talked about you see you, you see people in the mainstream physics talking about these things but they don't want to go there because it means that somebody will accuse them of doing parapsychology and academics are very uncomfortable about
0: that. So they don't do it, but we are doing it and we are finding interesting effects. Mm. So just going back a bit, how did the intention change the water and the chocolate? Is that measured by the effect that it has on the person that drank and ate those things?
1: Yes. How does it work? We don't know. Right. Right what we do know is that, that it does something. And when we're using gold standard methods like double blinds, uh, randomized controls, and, and that's how you can see an effect.
0: Right, yeah. Okay, sorry, I just wanted to clarify that. Um, your most recent book is called uh, Real Magic. What sort of things that are considered culturally to be magic what are you looking at in that book that could be sort of measured through research and experiment?
1: Well, so the practice of magic falls into three categories. One is divination. Divination is all about perceiving through space and time. So the stereotype is a fortune teller gazing into a mirror or gazing into a crystal ball. But the the intent of it is foresee something happening distant in space or distant in time. And so the I Ching, throwing of the runes, throwing dice, reading tea leaves, all of that is based, that's what divination is. Well, divination in my line of work is studying the nature of clairvoyance and precognition. And so one of the things that, one of the motivations for my writing this, this book then was to say that some of the traditional practices, which are considered to be ma- magical, actually have been studied in parapsychology for a long time, And we know that in principle, that these ancient practices actually, we see empirically using the best methods that science knows how, that they're real. And so you can imagine then somebody who had a, a specific talent in clairvoyance or a specific talent in precognition, they might be quite good at doing divination. So a second category is force of will, sometimes called destiny engineering, which is all about mind matter interaction. Causing the world to to obey your your intentions or your will. Well, parapsychology has been studying that in terms of psychokinetic effects or mind matter interaction. There's a ton of data on that too, and pretty strong evidence that that works too. And then the third category in in magical practice is called theurgy, which is about evoking spirits and doing things with spirits. And so here, parapsychology it uh, within a a subdomain of research is about survival of consciousness after bodily death. And if something survives, it's probably what we call spirits or some non non-human entity of some type. It's been very difficult uh, for science to figure out how to study that with only basically one exception. And the exception is studying whether mediums who claim to be able to do uh, to communicate with a deceased, are they able to get accurate information from what they perceive as a deceased person under conditions that are, are the equivalent of double blind or triple blind, where they're, they are not interacting with the person wanting to get information at all. So in the business, we, when a medium does their work, they, did it, they do it with a sitter The sitter is the person who wants to get in contact with a departed loved one, typically. So the medium will do that. Well, if the person is sitting directly in front of the medium, it opens the possibility of cold reading. Cold reading is um, not only medium, but all of us are very sensitive to the body language of other people. So if you're talking about someone and they raise an eyebrow, you know you've touched something interesting. And so a medium who is fraudulent could use these bits of body language and also by asking questions to narrow in on a likely story that will resonate with the sitter. So in an experimental context, you don't have a sitter there. You have what's called a proxy sitter. So you have somebody in front of them who doesn't know the deceased person at all, doesn't know the sitter at all, and so there's simply a body in front of the medium so the medium can work with the body and oftentimes really good mediums don't even need that they could work over the phone and the person on the other end of the phone could be a sitter or a proxy sitter who again doesn't know anything about what what about the departed person so those kinds of experiments have been done where you have triple blinds and you we can verify that the mediums are able to get verif- verifiable information that's correct uh, that still doesn't tell us whether or not what the medium medium's experience of, of an entity is correct or not, because maybe it's telepathy or clairvoyance or something else. But at least it points in the direction that some of the magical practices involving theurgy, which are largely ceremonial magic, uh, there may be some uh, evidence for that as well, but it's nowhere near as good as the first two categories. So I wrote this book because... I, I knew about the, the, the relationship then between magical practice and what we've done in the laboratory, but I was not finding books written out there who were going into this in actual in detail, in any detail. So that's what the book is about, showing what magic is, uh, what the science says about it, and then also how it differs in terms of a worldview. It's not a scientific, magic does not fit within the scientific worldview, but it does fit within the esoteric worldview.
0: Hmm. Do you think that in the past, cultures used magic more, that the people had a, more of a, an ability to do these sorts of things? Well, one of the things I talk about in the
1: book is that magic never went away. We're, we're always using elements of magic. They have different names now. So one of the largest categories of books is called affirmations, positive thinking. That's all based on magical ideas. So from a mainstream scientific perspective, it tends to be dismissed as superstition, except for the little problem that there actually is a bunch of empirical evidence showing that some of that works. So it's quite different, though, for the average person versus a talented person. So you have an average person who really wants something to happen. The amount of the 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 type of intention that they give and the, the degree of mental focus and all the other aspects which are important here tends to be pretty weak. And so the results of their affirmation tends to be pretty weak, not surprisingly. Some people have no talent at all, and they could intend all day long and never get anywhere. But the other side is that some people are very, very talented in these domains. And so whether they call it a magical practice or not, what they are doing both in terms of divination, which, I mean, I I know people in Silicon Valley who disappear into a closet with a pendulum and use the pendulum to tell them an answer to a question. It's not uncommon. And the same goes for all of these other magical practices that people tend to do secretly, off by themselves because they don't want to have to tell people what they're doing. So Intuitions lead to new prod, new products. That's how Silicon Valley and other places like that work. Uh, and intention plays a gigantic role in terms of of getting things to work as well. Uh, whether theurgy plays a part, I don't know. I kind of doubt it, but I don't, I don't really know. But some elements of magical practice never went away. They're they're hidden. That's why they're called esoteric. Uh, but but no, it's we're saturated with it. Most religious practices involve magic in one form or another. So that certainly has not gone away.
0: Hmm. Do you think that there are people out there who have a talent for this sort of thing, but don't use it? I mean, could, could things happen to them that they don't understand why they're happening? And it could be because of this. I think, the,
1: well, the answer is yes. Uh, some people are chronically lucky. Some people are chronically unlucky. And so when you start talking to such people and asking them, you know, tell, tell me the coincidences or synchronicities you've had in your lifetime, so They will. some people will rattle off a whole sequence of one mind-blowing synchronicity after the other, usually in a positive direction, sometimes not in a positive direction. Sometimes people are really good at being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Others are the the complete opposite. They're at the right place at the right time. So I would guess that people who are unusually successful in their work, uh, whether it's being an entrepreneur or being somebody in the entertainment business or an author or a variety of different kinds of jobs, the ones who are really, really good at it have a combination of they're, they're quite smart. They understand the nature of what they're doing in terms of their business but they also have these other elements. And the reason I say that is because I've talked to a lot of people who are very successful and after a beer or two, they'll start telling me stories which sound very much like magical practices. And they rely on it. They've learned that they can rely on it.
0: Mm. Um, At the beginning of Real Magic, you describe a a hypothetical future where magic is more prevalent. And you talk about... uh a scientist proving that the the plasticity of reality and i love that i love that term and i was just wondering if if in the past a culture a civilization understood this could that explain things about some of the mysteries of of the past like the the way certain buildings have been built this the size and scale of buildings i mean if in the past magic exists does that mean that that there are there's a potential there for why why some of the past civilizations are are so grand beyond the fact that the genius is always there. Um, is it possible? I suppose? yes.
1: Uh, one of the one of the ways I think about this is that the the average person in today's world is being constantly distracted uh, by everything. We're we're saturated with our smartphones and the news and our computers and everything. Well, to get into the mental states that are necessary to express these kinds of abilities to to any reasonable degree uh, requires calming down to a point where most people never get there. So people who go to a 10-day meditation retreat or do other kinds of practices where they are really able to get all of the distractions away. First of all, not many people have the luxury to be able to do that. But if they do, many will report that things like synchronicity start popping up immediately. They'll think of something and suddenly there there it is. We even did a survey among uh, beginning and advanced meditators asking them that as a result of their meditative practice, have they noticed things like synchronicities and other, and actually more explicitly psychic things happening like telepathy. And the answer is very clearly, yes, they do notice that these things are more prevalent. And what this says is that the phenomena are always there in the background. Uh, I I think that some aspects of reality are, is much more flexible than science is willing to admit at the moment. And that we're able to manipulate the, uh, the the path that we're floating down. I have this image of uh, we're floating on a, a little boat on a big river that has a strong current. And if you're not paying attention to anything, your boat's going to be pulled by that current. If you decide to steer a little bit, you can actually manipulate where you are in the river to a small degree. That you You can't push too hard against the current because it's going to pull you, but you can steer whether... You go over a waterfall, which might be on one side of the, of the stream, you can steer yourself gently to go over and not go over the waterfall, go to the left side of the stream. So I think what, what the magical practices do, or whether you even think of it in those terms, is a matter of being aware of, of this flexibility of, uh, of where you're being pulled by the stream of history that we're on. So we are definitely in currents. Uh, where you were born, who your parents were—all of those things are very, very heavily determinants of the stream that you're on and where you're likely to end up, uh, and, and genetics and a bunch of other things. But can you steer, given the the state of uh, the world that you're you've been given? I think the answer is very clear, and that's and the answer is yes, and that's why all of the literature and affirmations and positive thinking come into play because it does work. It does allow you to steer a little bit. And this is what we see in the laboratory. We can steer how outcomes occur where by chance they don't happen. Or if there's no steering, it doesn't nothing happens. That's very interesting. So that this is like the grand metaphor way of thinking about what's going on. The the more interesting question at this point, I think, is the one that you asked. Well how does that work? Well, and that we don't know that one yet, but that's you know part of the reason why I remain just as excited as working in this field now as I did 30 years ago or 40 years ago. We were trying to figure out how, how is this even possible?
0: Mm. So what are you working on at the moment? Is there another book on the way? I have ideas about
1: books, but it, it takes a lot of time to write a book. And I am engaged in so many other things that I don't have the time. One of the experiments we did recently involved a mind-matter interaction, where the matter was entangled photons. And so, what we're, we're trying to do in that experiment and a, a series of previous experiments I've did, uh, all of which are looking at is there actually some relationship between the between consciousness or mind and quantum phenomena. Well. This is the first time I think that anyone has done an experiment where we're working explicitly with a a non-local form of reality namely entanglement. And we wanted to simply see if you if you have a device as we did that can produce entangled photons can the intention modulate the strength of the entanglement? Because entanglement goes is on a spectrum like everything else. It could be quite strong or quite weak. Even so, weak to the point that it's no longer quantum; it's classical. So, you, so that we wanted to see: can the mind manipulate that level of reality? And the short answer is yes, it can. So, we're continually thinking about other ways of testing what I know a lot of physicists are interested in, like you know, if you you measure a quantum system, it changes. Well, but what's what does measurement mean? Well, some mean some people think that measurement really only means something when you are aware of it in other words you need consciousness in order to acknowledge that you know something now again this is a minority opinion but nevertheless it's testable and these are the kinds of tests that we've been running to to probe deeper and deeper into this relationship between mind and matter and i i think that we've seen and other colleagues have seen that there is some kind of relationship there and that's why my view of reality is flexible. It's it's flexible. It's resilient. Uh, it seems to be engaged with us in some very fundamental way.
0: Mm, absolutely. Well, Dean, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. If people want to find out more about your work and your books, how best do they? do that well one way is to go to deanradin.com
1: that tells about uh, that gives a bio and tells about the books and links to where you can buy it but you can basically buy any of my books in any bookstore anywhere Uh, it's in 15 languages now so most places in the world you can find a book that you you can actually read Uh, the other place to go is the institute of noetic sciences which is noetic N-O-E-T-I-C dot org. And there you can see not only what I'm up to as far as the institute is concerned, but also what my colleagues are up to, what the whole science team is working on. And then uh, I'm also the chairman of the board for a biotech startup, which is called Cognigenics. And it's a neuroengineering uh, startup where we're addressing mental health issues using genetic engineering of the brain. So we have a number of patents on how to do that, and it's called Cognigenics. So the website is cognigenics.io.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thanks, Dean. You're welcome. When talking about magic on the podcast with guests, I found that I sometimes fall into the trap of imagining that it's disappeared and wonder how to bring it back. And I think some of the questions I asked Dean showed that. Of course it's still around, and always will be, but there are definite ways to better acknowledge its existence and cultural importance in the Western world. I think that Dean's research into the relationship between magic and consciousness could really help with that. And his books are well worth checking out if you enjoyed this episode. As ever, please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen, and sharing it on social media. As it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.